woman is a building, but it's also a, a living, breathing, animalistic organism that, depending on which day, it has its own personality. You are of Parliament. You've got to get over there and you've got to remember that. The other thing is, if you don't watch it, you stop becoming political. The civil service don't remind you of your politics. That's not their job. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of our special Inside Briefing series, Becoming a Minister. In this series, former ministers and civil servants reveal what it's really like to hold ministerial office and how to do the job well. You will hear all about the challenges, confusion, decisions and drama of a job which really is like no other. My name is Tim Durrant, Programme Director for Ministers at the IFG. Today, in the final episode of this special Inside Briefing series, we're talking about Parliament. Because all ministers are also members of Parliament, either in the House of Commons or the Lords, and they all have to juggle their ministerial and parliamentary responsibilities. So how do ministers find a balance between those demands, as well as finding time for their constituents in their busy diaries? How do they navigate parliamentary questions, select committee appearances and managing legislation? And how good is the civil service at supporting ministers in Parliament? We'll hear why ministers must prioritise Parliament and being political, what their day-to-day life in Parliament is like, and what the one thing you should never, ever do in Parliament is. For all MPs and Lords, once you get the call to become a minister, your life and your parliamentary career completely change. Estelle Morris, later Education Secretary, was appointed as a junior minister in the Department for Education and Employment after the Labour landslide of 1997. She found that becoming a minister transformed her relationship with Parliament. Maybe a month or two into the job in 97, I was overdoing something and I, I looked around Parliament, I thought, yeah, you know, the, the tea room, the cloakroom, the corridor, I thought, I've not been here for ages. And although I'd have, you know, been across for questions or a meeting, I'd not roamed the place and chatted and had a cup of tea. Came across people like other Birmingham MPs and I thought, I don't know what's happening to you. I've not spoke to you since before the general election. I've not had a proper conversation. You know, we represent the same city. Estelle felt that being so out of touch with Parliament wasn't right and she vowed to change things. And I clicked then that I had to work harder remembering, really, I belonged in Parliament and the department helps you to deliver things that Parliament is holding to your account for and the electorate. And the, the trouble is that, first of all, Geographically, you go to work at the department. You don't go to work at Parliament, drop your stuff off, then go over to the department. You go to work at the department. You very often leave work from the department. I'm joined now by my colleague Grant Dalton, researcher at the Institute for Government. Grant, tell us what tips former ministers have given for managing the pressures of Parliament. The first thing we've heard is the importance of knowing your brief. Ministers need to know a lot of things. They need to understand what's happening in their departments and in their policy areas. And if you don't know or if you get something wrong, then you can be really exposed, particularly in select committee appearances where select committee members can have an opportunity to ask a lot of follow-up questions and really scrutinise what ministers are doing. Ministers need to try and be and sound human. And I think the best ministers at a dispatch box are relaxed. They'll, they'll tell jokes. They'll also connect with some of the stories and questions they're hearing. What are the different types of ministerial roles that involve spending the most time in Parliament? So there's a difference between junior and senior roles on this. So junior ministers often spend more time, I guess, doing the doing the grunt work in Parliament of, of getting bills through the House, of things like Westminster Hall debates, perhaps the less glamorous side of the ministerial job in Parliament. The other thing that's worth mentioning on this is, is some particular ministerial roles which spend a lot of time in Parliament. So those can be 
the whips in both houses who are in charge of party discipline, making sure the party wins, um, votes in, in the Commons and the Lords and spend a lot of time in, in, the, in the House. And the leaders of each House, leaders of the House of Commons and the House of Lords, who will spend a lot of time in, in Parliament as well, and making sure that the government's business gets through and doing the kind of organisational work of a government in Parliament. And finally, whether you count them as ministerial roles or not, parliamentary secretaries to each department, which are kind of the most junior roles in the department, will spend a lot of time kind of supporting their secretaries of state in parliament as well. And we've heard, haven't we, that both being a a PPS, a a parliamentary private secretary and a whip are good training grounds for ministerial roles. Yeah, absolutely. Because they mean you get to know the party. So each each whip, for instance, will have a a kind of a flock, so-called of MPs, who they are tasked with supporting and also making sure that they turn up to vote. So you get to know lots of your fellow MPs, you get to know specific departments that you might be working with on, on legislation. Given how important Parliament is, you might expect that ministers would spend all their time focusing on parliamentary business. But the civil service generally want a minister to be in the department, not in the Palace of Westminster. Estelle Morris explained that prioritising parliamentary time in her diary was crucial. The civil service... It's not their job to make sure you have time in the constituency. If they can timetable you Friday and Saturday, they will timetable you Friday and Saturday. And then they'll send you the box to do Sunday. They might like you, but it's their job to get the work through the department. Sheila, who ran my constituency office, was finding, rather than having an hour of day on the telephone call with me, she was finding it difficult to get to me at all during during the Monday to Friday. So we set up some rules with the department. One civil service timetabled in the diary when she would ring so that there would be the time for her to ring during the day, but it wasn't as frequent as she did before as a minister. But also we had the rule that Friday's diary was Sheila's. And if the department wanted to put anything in, they had to talk to her. And the idea that you have to actively prioritise Parliament as a minister was echoed by Andrea Ledson, who served as Environment and Business Secretary under Theresa May and Boris Johnson. She said she had to persuade civil servants to give her enough time for her parliamentary responsibilities. Parliament itself becomes of second order importance to the department, certainly in the eyes of the civil servants who support you. And so if you want to continue to prioritise Parliament, then you absolutely have to take control of it as well as of your own diary. Andrea felt the civil service sometimes could be more in touch with Parliament. I think the civil service totally forgets about the democracy side of what we do. I wish that the civil service paid more attention to not just the absolute need to let their minister take part in the sort of democratic process here, engaging with backbenchers and debates and so on, but also the opportunity of this place, because it is MPs who really do know what's going on on the ground and who do have the great ideas for new policy and so on. And I think quite often the civil service just forgets about this place. Being in Parliament, gauging its mood, hearing what MPs are talking about and picking up on ideas that are being shared in the tea rooms can help ministers do well in their new jobs. As Jim Murphy, former Scotland Secretary under Gordon Brown, found. Parliament is a building, but it's also a a living, breathing, animalistic organism that has its, depending on which day, it has its own personality. And... You've got to be able to anticipate where Parliament and the Chamber is going to be any, on any given day based upon a multiplicity of external events and what time of year it is and just what mood and where we are in the political cycle. So being able to anticipate and navigate that 
will strengthen your performance as a minister. In short, don't lose touch with Parliament because it's Parliament you're most likely to come a cropper in. This is particularly true for MPs with smaller majorities who are worrying not just about keeping their ministerial jobs but also their parliamentary seat. If you've got a marginal seat, it will not wait for you to get back to it in next year's time to catch up on the legwork. It's got to be done. And so the other thing is a sense of nervousness about not having a job. Knowing you are statistically quite likely to lose your seat at the next election gives you a a frame of mind which is different than if you've got a 20,000 majority. As well as a source of worry, Parliament can also be quite fun. Many MPs use jokes to lighten the mood in the chamber and get colleagues on side, even when they're at the expense of the Speaker, as Andrea Ledsom found. John Burko was in the chair and saying that if someone were to call someone a stupid woman, they should really apologise. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I would just like to ask, um, after your um, finding there, that individuals who are found to have made unwelcome remarks should apologise. And so on a point of order, I asked him why it was when he called me a stupid woman, he didn't apologise. Why it is that when an opposition member found that you had called me a stupid woman, you did not apologise in this chamber? Anyway, it amused me. So why does Parliament matter so much to ministers? Grant. I think for a lot of ministers, Parliament is their home. It's their where they feel more natural, you know, it's, it's where everyone has started their, their parliamentary career before they became a minister. It's also a way of connecting with constituents, connecting with the people they serve and their expectations. And I think that's that's really important for a lot of successful ministers to actually constantly keep in mind kind of the, the people they've been elected to, to serve and what the expectations of the public are in how they do their jobs. One element we haven't talked about yet is legislation. Grant, what role does a minister have in taking legislation through parliament? So there are a variety of things ministers have to do to support legislation through the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Actually, to start off with, they might have to lobby quite hard with their leader of the House and with the parliamentary business committees to get their legislation onto the floor of the House and debate it at all. After that, they will spend a lot of time shepherding the bill and trying to give it an easy route through the House of Commons and the House of Lords, whether that's through speaking on behalf of legislation and supporting it, or having conversations with MPs and Lords who are wavering in their support of the bill to try and persuade them to vote in favour of it. They will also have to decide whether to accept amendments to the legislation or whether to, to try and proceed with, with the legislation as is. So that will involve quite a lot of difficult conversations about whether amendments fundamentally change the bill or whether they want to stick with the legislation as it is. We know legislation takes up quite a lot of time, especially for junior ministers. Jim Murphy also had experience taking tricky legislation through Parliament. I took through three pieces of legislation, two of which I enjoy speaking about and one in which I don't. But fortunately, the one in which I don't enabled me to learn. It was, I think, uh, it was a, an, a peculiar piece of legislation called the Legislative Reform Bill. It was in the, just after the 2001 election, and it was a piece of legislation without a purpose, to be blunt. And the department, myself and others, found it difficult to articulate the case for it, and we rightly amended it. Learning on the job is crucial for ministers, especially in Parliament. Jim feels that the experience of the Legislative Reform Bill equipped him better for more important parliamentary battles to come. But if it hadn't been for that choppy ride that I got, I don't think I would have been able to, I'm trying to be bashful, I don't think I'd be as as okay at what I did with the, the welfare reform bill of the Lisbon Treaty. 
Civil servants are vital for getting legislation done, whether that's the civil service lawyers making sure the bill is watertight or the parliamentary clerks working out how it will fit into the timetable. But they don't always have the skills they need to support ministers about what happens next in Parliament, as Andrea Ledsom explained. Civil servants are very good at briefing their ministers on policy and taking feedback on that. But my experience is they are much less good at briefing ministers on how to manage a bill. In particular, churn of civil servants can hamper their ability to effectively support ministers in Parliament, as Andrea recalled from her time taking the energy bill through the House of Commons. That bill team was incredibly new and very inexperienced themselves. And it became quite problematic. And what wasn't clear to me is where are all these problems arising from? And what I didn't know at that time was that it was arising from the parliamentary legislation team. Poor preparation of bills from ministers and civil servants can even result in bills being ditched at the last minute, after lots of work has gone into preparing them. As leader of the Commons, I saw, I'm sorry to say, a huge amount of legislation that we had to send back. When I was leader, it was because we had a hung parliament. And so the legislation just wasn't drawn tightly enough and it would be subject to extraordinarily expansive amendments, which we didn't want to put before the House because we were in a hung parliament. And a lot of the time that would cost a large sum of money apart from anything else. The solution for Andrea is more training for ministers, which we at the Institute would definitely endorse. When I became leader of the Commons and I was chairing the Parliamentary Business and Legislation Committee, I understood perfectly that this was all about government handling and how we were going to get the legislation through and what the impact could be of hostile amendments and so on. Um, so again, I think that certainly the, the training for a minister in parliamentary requirements of a minister was, I'm going to say, non-existent. And it's clear that civil servants supporting ministers would also benefit from a greater understanding of Parliament. Ministers are not sufficiently informed right up front to see the pitfalls. And that is education. And certainly, you know, having done a fairly long stint by ministerial standards, two years as leader of the Commons, I have been asked quite often by civil servants to go and talk to departments about legislation and was always happy to do that because it seemed to me it really was important for civil servants to understand how do you actually change the law. So we've heard the challenges of managing legislation but of course that isn't the only thing that ministers deal with in parliament. Grant is here again to talk about some of the other responsibilities ministers face in the Palace of Westminster. So one of the big responsibilities of a minister is appearing in front of select committees. These are committees made up of MPs from a variety of parties who are expected to scrutinise normally the performance of a specific department. So they will be asking questions about uh, how well the department is doing, any perceived failures or controversies in, in the department, often quite mundane but difficult to answer questions about things like budgets. And they will be often, especially from uh, opposition MPs, kind of trying to trip a minister up or, or, or find um, something to get a good headline or, or kind of criticism. So, so they can be very difficult places for ministers to go. Estelle Morris told us this was one of the most effective ways ministers can be held to account and where their mistakes are sometimes exposed. I think it's the select committees where most of the effective scrutiny is done and anything that bolsters the select committees. I'm not saying this as, a minister, as an ex-minister, but as a Democrat, I think it's good. That's where ministers come unstuck and those people have the time to know whether you know it or not. Another demanding part of a Secretary of State's job is oral questions. 
All cabinet ministers have to stand up in the chamber of the House of Commons, usually every five weeks, to answer questions from their shadow counterpart as well as from backbench MPs. This can be a pretty stressful time for ministers and require them to improvise. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'm reminded of the old adage that the SNP had invented the light bulb. The Secretary of State would call it a dangerous anti-candle conspiracy. The reality is, in 1997, he manifesto opposed evolution. It said it would create strains which could well pull apart the Union and risk rivalry and conflict between these parliaments or assemblies and the parliaments in Westminster. His 2019 manifesto committed to a deposit return scheme to incentivise people to recycle plastic and glass. So why is he working so hard to fulfil the vision of 1997 and not his commitment of 2019? Former Business Secretary Andrea Leadsom said oral questions were a key part of her job and a good opportunity for civil servants to learn about the demands of Parliament as well. One thing I really did focus on, again as a minister, was whenever there were oral questions here, I would get as many of the policy teams and the private office to come over and watch from the public gallery as I could. Jim Murphy, on the other hand, said oral questions weren't actually that effective as a scrutiny tool and that ministers always had the advantage. I think oral scrutiny is is insufficient in that I always find it easier to be the minister answering the question than when we were in opposition being the Shadow Secretary of State asking the question. The minister has the last word. The minister has a folder full of briefings. The minister spends all day talking and has a, should have nimble fleet of footness. Even if they're not the best tool for scrutiny, oral questions can still be nerve-wracking. For Estelle Morris, they required a lot of prep in advance. You've got to know the detail. If you know your area, I think you manage I think it's proper and it's OK. But you can't fly by the seat of your pants in it. You, there's always some MP got some constituency case that disproves the generality of what you've just said. Or, you know, you're announcing £10 million, but they've not had any extra money for 10 years. What I think I'd say is, from the minister's point of view, you've got to know enough to have shades in your answer. Estelle felt that the lines to take prepared by civil servants weren't always what was needed. Ministers need to be able to speak off the cuff at the dispatch box sometimes and to have a frank conversation with MPs. If you go in with the lines to take approach, you'll feel uncomfortable and you won't have a proper discussion So I always felt with questions in the comms and the select committee that prepare as though it's the most important exam in your life. Go in there knowing what you're going to say. Oral questions are especially hard when you're coming into an area you aren't expert in. Estelle spent the first six years of her ministerial career in education, but was then offered a role in the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. She found that working on new issues where she didn't have as much expertise was hard work. I had to work harder because I would sometimes be standing at the dispatch box I was really aware of the limits of my knowledge. And more than that, I was aware of the limits of my confidence in answering a question that I didn't expect to come up. On schools policy, I'm not saying it's all the time, but most of the time, if I get a question that I didn't anticipate, I either know I can say that's really interesting, I don't know, because it's all right to say it for that issue, or I can show some understanding But to be honest, I knew the framework in DCMS. Being questioned at the dispatch box as a minister can be difficult, especially in a new area. For Estelle, this is an argument to leave ministers in their jobs for longer. Certainly a message we at the IFG would endorse. Sometimes I was almost dreading the next question. I thought, if this questioner takes this on one more stage, 
I'm into waffly answers and uh, that, that's not good. So it, it, it's, it's not as easy. I wasn't there as long, but that's an argument for not moving people about as much to tell you the truth. I, I, I picked a lot up, but I was never as confident or as at ease as I was in another department. Jim Murphy had some advice for new ministers on how to cope with the demands of speaking on behalf of the government in the chamber. Lots of people only go into the chamber when they want to speak. A new minister should go into the chamber because they want to listen. Listen to how more experienced ministers are handling questions. Listen to the tempo of how questions are asked. Listen to the tempo in which ministers occasionally answer and often respond to questions. Just imbue the, the culture and by osmosis absorb the practices. Take advice from some old hands. But for Jim, there was also one thing you should never do in Parliament. Never, ever, ever, ever lie. And if you do make a mistake, immediately correct the record. I know that's out of fashion at the moment, but if you're a new minister who wants the chamber to have high regard for you, it really is compulsory to correct the record immediately. So as Grant said, the responsibility of a minister can vary by their seniority. We heard about this from George Eustace, who was a food and farming minister between 2013 and 2019, before being promoted to Environment Secretary under Boris Johnson. He explained how the key responsibilities of ministers in Parliament differ depending on their exact job title. Well, for a junior minister, they actually will do more in Parliament than a Secretary of State will. So for a junior minister, periodically, uh, their department will be on the list for Westminster Hall debates, and they can expect to get, uh, therefore, called in to give a Westminster Hall debate on all sorts of issues under the sun. And they will also be called to Parliament to do statutory instruments. That's something that the junior ministers lead, and that will take up quite a bit of time. As a Secretary of State, uh, the big changes, you don't do Westminster Hall debates. You're, you're more prone to get those unexpected cabinet subcommittee type meetings, but you do less in Parliament overall. So there we are. Parliament is an important place for ministers and the work they do there is varied and complicated. We'll give the final word to Jim Murphy. I never regretted having spent time in the chamber because I know that it strengthened my ability to do my job. That's all we've got time for today. And this marks the end of this special series of Inside Briefing episodes looking at how to be a minister. If you're a new minister or have your eye on becoming one, we hope this special episode of Inside Briefing proves useful if you ever find yourself standing at the dispatch box and trying to work out just how to get that tricky bill through Parliament. You can listen to the rest of the series on our website, iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to find out more, check out the IFG Academy pages on our website, which are full of resources for those in or interested in joining government. And read our Ministers Reflect interviews with almost 150 former government ministers. Thanks for listening.